Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Sapere Ande. My name is Dylan, and I am the only host this week. My co-host Aaron is off this week to deal with some personal matters, so I shall be taking the reins this week by myself, although not totally alone. As we mentioned last week, we will have a guest today. He is a dear friend, my friend Ryan, a longtime sparring partner, shall we say. Uh, in high school, we were very closely aligned, politically speaking. And now that we, you know, 10 plus years later, um, we are very different in regards to who we used to be, and at times seem to be on the opposite of the political spectrum from each other. And yet, I I think you may find we probably have more similarities than we do differences, sometimes different ways of describing the same thing. But nonetheless, please welcome my dear friend, Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Hey, Dylan, how's it going? Just, you know, getting by, surviving quarantine. Although I'd imagine that things aren't as bad here in Oklahoma as to, as where as where you are. Now, do you want to say where you are? Um, I mean, I live in Virginia right now. Um, there you go. It's, uh, it's all right. I mean, you don't see too many people wearing masks or anything like that. But well, it is what it is. People are going to have their opinions. Personally, I... Well, I have to wear a mask every day anyway, so but what are you going to do? Well, yeah, probably with with the way your face looks, you probably got to cover it up more often than leave it uncovered, huh? Well, the mask is an improvement from the paper bag, so. Right, I get that. Yeah. Um, well, let's start off with, as as we kind of mentioned last week, Aaron and I have talked about how we've progressed into being what we would call small L libertarians. Our first guest had we had on there, she described how she became a libertarian. So if if you wouldn't mind, kind of give us your personal background in politics and, and how you've come to call yourself, as, as you told me, a, a Marxist-Leninist. Yeah, sure. So in high school, as you may or may not know, I was – a very hardline conservative. If you're poor, it's your fault. You're not trying hard enough. Right. If you're, um, you know, reduce, uh, reduce social security or privatize social security, reduce public spending. Although the only good, I think the only good politics I had at the time was, uh, I guess some sort of budding anti-imperialism where you say, you know, I don't think the U S should have bases in all these countries. So, Right. Yeah, that, that was well and good. Um, and the funny thing is, I you know you frequently hear accusations about oh you went to college and you became a liberal, and I don't know if it's just because seventeen, eighteen I think is probably the time when people really start coming into their own. I guess it's of course going to vary person to person. It doesn't mean that people can't think about it earlier, but I think that's probably the time where people actually start questioning those things. Maybe uh, who yeah. knows? But uh, for me, it ended up being uh, when I was in college, I. I ended up discovering uh, Christopher Hitchens and yes. what was then, and it's still called the New Atheist Movement. And yes. um, there's actually a guy on YouTube, uh, his name is Libertarian Socialist Rants. I think his name's Cameron. Um, great videos, good to watch, uh, um, although I, I would probably disagree with his politics now, but um, uh, not all of it anyway. But anyway, he, he had a video where he said, I used to be a militant atheist and I'm still atheist. I'm just militant about other things now. And I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with that. So, um, yeah. but so when I was in college, I sort of discovered that. And yeah, actually the other thing that did it was there's a, a, a punk band from the Pittsburgh area called anti-flag. And I also discovered their music around, uh, I don't know, junior, senior year of high school. And at first it was just about the music. And then you listen to the songs enough and you start to go, Hey, you know, these mention you know, real places, real people. So you look into, look into those subjects of the, of those songs and start to discover things. They have songs about you know, racial injustice, uh, sexual injustice. Um, like one of their songs that, uh, resonated with me was, uh, um, right to choose because I am personally not, um, a member of the LGBTQ community, but I have friends who are and who had parents growing up who strongly disagree with their decisions. And the song's chorus was, you wave your flag, tell me I'm free, then use the word f-. <laughs> 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 Yeah, 
to fuck with me. And right. so just, I, I really think that their song was, their music was the catalyst that sort of set me on the path. And uh, you start to look into more things in their music, uh, like uh, the Gat or um, uh, they have a song Operation Iraqi Liberation. Uh, so a lot of that music sort of got me on the path to say, hey, I should start looking into these things. And then through Hitchens, I ended up discovering Noam Chomsky. And <laughs> I remember... I remember proudly declaring to you that I was now an anarchist. <laughs> but yeah, wasn't that a conversation we had on on my porch, if I remember correctly? Uh, it might have been. Yeah, I I can't remember for sure, but I'm um, yeah. I so I, I ended up discovering Noam Chomsky and watching all his videos, and that's where you really start to get into the nitty gritty of how dastardly and blood soaked and and uh, and just downright wicked and despicable U.S. foreign policy really is. And yeah, um, and then the, I think the the shifts from there get a little bit more minute. I guess depending on who you ask, some people might say that there is a world of difference between even leftist schools of thought. But um, uh, more recently, it was looking around at at Venezuela and Bolivia and Cuba and China to an extent too, and observing that the, the of course there are going to be people who disagree and say, well, that's not real socialism or that's not. Uh, you know, that's the revolution betrayed. That's state capitalism. But really, the states that have, that have called themselves Marxist-Leninists were the ones that had succeeded in improved um, improved the conditions for the people in not only that country but for people around the world and learning more about the history of the Soviet Union and all of the trials and tribulations it had in the 20s and 30s and all the way through World War II. Um, I think just really solidified my. Uh, my current political views. So, and and I think the other really big thing was um, uh, this, well, I guess two big things. One was that I didn't think that uh, when I was a libertarian socialist that um, they adequately answered the question of how to defend the revolution, whereas you have a strong organized state apparatus on the quote authoritarian socialist side. And the other thing was I didn't think that that Chomsky and Hitchens and and even like pre Iraq War Hitchens who was because he described himself as a Luxembourgist Trotskyist. Um, I didn't think that uh, what I had learned from them alone explained how the world worked and how uh, global power and you know just how global economy uh, and economic power uh, was never accurately described to me, I didn't think. And that's what I found in in Marxism and Leninism by extension. So So then how so how would you describe all that now? Like You've gotten to this point, so where would you say you are and uh, where you're standing at if you were to define your ideas and principles into you know, a couple sentences or a short paragraph? What would you say? Well, I would say that I was a Marxist-Leninist and that I think that the groundwork laid by Marx and then Lenin is a revolutionary guide to countries that seek to free themselves from the grip of imperialism. Um, and... Some more maybe defining statements would be that I think that, for example, that China is socialist, um, which, believe it or not, can, well, you know, I maybe can believe it can be a pretty controversial statement. Not that I deserve any gratitude for making it or anything like that. I'll, I'll win it in other means, hopefully, but, um, or not, not from you, actually. Forget it. Yeah, but, not from me. No. no. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, for example, is is an you know an extension of Marxism, Leninism, but that Marxism, Leninism laid that foundation, and that China is just applying um, whether it's a subscription to Mao Zedong thought or to Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, that China is just adapting itself to the conditions of having to, as Marx described, bear the scars of the the world that it was born in, paraphrase, and that you won't have socialism right away. You have to build it and you have to exist in the capitalist world. And that you also need a strong state apparatus to defend what you're building because tales as old as the Paris Commune and the Spanish Civil War and by extension, even some uh, some things in Bolivia today with what happened to Evo Morales all show that playing by the rules of uh, bourgeois electoralism and playing by the rules of the United States and the Western powers gets you nowhere and that you have to break that mold and that you have to be willing to organize and you have to be willing to uh, try to disassociate yourself while remaining integrated, which is is oxymoronic, but that's what these countries yeah. have to do. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, mean, I know you listened to that episode a little while back about 
we talked about the Spanish Civil War, and and that was something that Aaron and I have talked about, and I've thought about. So, when you live in a more uh, fractured society, a libertarian society that where there is no central authority, um, it it was always a question on my part, and it's really the big reason why I haven't gone um, as far to the point where I call myself an anarchist. Um, because should an outside actor, an outside state actor, uh, attempt to gain control over you, what, what should that defense be? And without some kind of central authority, what does that defense look like? And I, I mean, I've, I've never really had, um, the, the answer to that. And yet I still am so opposed to the concept of having that centralized authority just because so often, uh, and you being a lover of history, you of course know this as well. So often that central authority and the power that that central authority has, it too often then directs that authority onto its, its own citizens and sometimes the most graphic, gruesome ways possible. So what, what would you say to that? What, what would you propose as a potential um, fix to that? Well, I guess I would start by saying that in any revolutionary situation, you're going to have counter-revolutionary elements. That the general idea is that currently there is what I guess you, you could call a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, where the rich are in control of all aspects of society. And that's where you can sort of bring in like Gramsci's cultural hegemony, where even you know things culturally still point up at, at the powers that be. Um, like for example, um, the recent Call of Duty game, I think I haven't played single player, but I, I read about it and it was there was a mission where you blow up a dam in Venezuela. And how many people who played the game do you think know? <laughs> no. Wait, was that really? I haven't played it yet. I haven't played it either. That's I read thing. about it. I read about it when it was coming out. I think it was maybe it was sort of like uh, riding on the coattails of Jack Ryan or something like that. But uh oh. um how many people do you think could point out like Venezuela on a map or something like that? And that's you know, and there, there's a point to be made for educating people and willing to be explained. That's what Thomas Sankara said. He said, you have to be willing to explain these things. You can't be spiteful or else you're not going to convince anyone and no one's going to learn. But so when you have that flip, when you have that uprising and you establish what you call a dictatorship of the proletariat, there are going to be counter-revolutionary elements because the bourgeoisie as a class still exists. The rich or the people who may have been rich or were rich previously still exist and they're not just going to give up that that power they're not just going to give up yeah. everything that they had and that's where you get um i can't even remember how many countries invaded russia in the very early 20s uh during their civil war it was like the u.s and britain and france all sent troops over to russia and supported the the czarists the monarchists and the white army and there's always going to be some pushback and yeah, you have to be willing to push back against that because um, I think it was, yeah, it was Frederick Douglass who said, "Power concedes nothing without demand," and that power that would then would have have belonged to uh, the bourgeois class in a way still belongs to them, and that power has to be suppressed because then you lose everything that you'd fought for. And there's also the the notion of well, all these bad things that happened, and I would uh, I think a good example of that might be the Holodomor, which was the uh, the Ukrainian famine. Uh, are you familiar? I've I've heard it. I don't know really any of the details. I just know that it's a a thing. In so, fact, I think the first time I heard that word, it was probably from you. <laughs> uh, in another in a different conversation way back when. Yeah, you must have run out of options that night, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, long story short, the the typical, I guess, Western history goes that there was a large nationalist movement in Ukraine. And Stalin didn't like it. It was a threat to his power. So he intentionally starved Ukraine and millions of people died. And it's one of the things that you know people point to when they say, well, uh, the Soviet Union killed a gazillion people. And uh, an interesting fact on that, too, there's a, a the Black Book of Communism also includes German soldiers who died during World War II and Nazi collaborators in Ukraine as victims of communism. So that's interesting. But so for the whole Autumn War, that was the, the basic story. But you can read stuff from historians like Grover Fur and specifically someone he refers to, Mark Tauger, who's a, a historian of Soviet agriculture. And you can read into the conditions of the famine or 
the conditions of the of the harvest for those years and you can also examine the the geopolitical conditions and see that well and you know this goes into a whole big backstory with uh with William Randolph Hearst and the press in in Nazi Germany and how Hearst had to deal with them and uh the long story short is that the Holodomor was greatly exaggerated in some parts even fabricated just to just so Nazi Germany could point at the Soviet Union and say, well, look how terrible this is. They're starving their own people. Like there are pictures that were run in the press that were from a separate famine in the Volga region in the 20s. And famines had been happening in Russia for ages. And they didn't happen anymore after there was one after World War II, and I'm pretty sure that was it. But they'd happened for a long time. And you have one that not only affected Ukraine, but all the surrounding uh Soviet republics in the area, and then people point to it and say, well, this was, this was genocide, this was suppression of the people. And I think that's a good allegory for, for you know, w- without painting with a too wide of a brush to say, okay, well, how, how much of the pushback uh, that these countries get for oppressing their people is actually pushback for oppressing just the wrong segment of, of classes in that country, the classes that are supported by the Western powers and supported by outside powers who want nothing more than to see that country fail. Um, I think the Hong yeah. Kong situation is similar too, but I'm sucking up too much, too much oxygen over here. So. You know, so, so you've said things like this before, and obviously I'm not one who's ever going to defend, at least without reason, the... Um, shall we say the state sanctioned truth, you know? So for example, the, the truth we learned in history class versus what actually happened or, um, what may have happened from someone else's perspective. Think, you know, people's history of the United States. So I'm definitely, um, this has always intrigued me as, okay, so maybe there is a different way to look at this, to see the cause behind this or that. It's also hard for me to get over viewing what seemed to be black and white for the longest time is, okay, this is clearly what happened and this is wrong. Millions of people died under quote-unquote communism and therefore we should reject communism. And um, it really, there is other ways to look at that besides something that was just, you know, so such a blanket statement like that. And I, I, being someone who identifies as a small L libertarian, getting associated with certain people in the libertarian community, it seems like for as much as libertarians want to reject what is often seen as conventional truth, it seems like when it comes to anything, communism or socialism, they're just as likely as to um, get in line with whatever the last guy said rather than actually questioning the the narrative that has been spouted in pretty much every state school um, for as long as I've been alive, at least. Yeah, so you're saying that that suppression of, of a free thought through state-sanctioned history exists in those countries as well, is what you're... I'm saying it exists in this country. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well. I mean... It, and, uh, and that's that the thing, joke. like... Oh. I was <laughs> going to say, that, that was a joke. I was going to... Uh, well, I, I was going to remind you of uh, that Texas school book that said, uh, or uh, Oklahoman school book or something like that, that was like, uh, the First Nations people just decided to give their land to the colonists as a peace offering, and it was nonviolent. And... <laughs> but, um, that sounds like something that would be commonly shared in this state, especially with, <laughs> well, you know, with the native population. And how, like, majority of the state is actually technically is, like, native land. Um, that would make sense if that actually was in a history book. Is that is that a sure thing that you had seen? Yeah, I, uh, I forget where I saw that. Oh I'll see if I can find it and maybe I, I can send it to you or something like that. But Yeah, I guess that it doesn't. I guess it really doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. Anyway, my point is... Um, and that's one of the reasons why this podcast exists. We said it in our trailer, you know, a few months ago. You know, this isn't just a libertarian podcast, so we can talk about libertarianism and, you know, fillet whatever nominee um, the libertarians finally picked. By the way, Joe Jorgensen, uh, twenty twenty. Um, this was also a podcast that was started to 
that was started to question those approved narratives. Um, and it seems like whenever we start to talk about socialism or communism, especially on the conservative side that likes to tout itself as being the free thinkers nowadays, any conversation about it is immediately shut down and suppressed. Mm-hmm. And you had, you had, so actually it's the podcast I have saved and I haven't listened to it yet, but it's actually Grover Fur's uh, interview on uh, pearls of the round table. I still yeah, haven't yeah. listened to it, but it's currently sitting on my app, my pocket casts app to listen to. And it's, it is the sixth one down the list. So hopefully I will get to it in the next couple of weeks. So I'll talk to you about it in 2022. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually, if, I just wanted to make Go one ahead. quick point, though, on the on the notion of how history is presented in the United States, and and I, this is a genuine question; it's not rhetorical. Is in history classes in the United States, you're typically taught about how terrible you know the Soviet Union was, and maybe if you have like a right. current event class, like how terrible places like Venezuela and Cuba are. And my theory has always been that the reason you're taught about those countries and their brand of, of you know, horrific socialism is that those are the countries that actually stood a chance at tipping the scale ever so slightly away from U.S. global hegemony. Because in history class, you never learn about Nestor Makhno and free territory of the Ukraine. You never hear about the Spanish Civil War. You never hear about, right. um, you never hear about the Paris Commune, but you do hear about what is specifically the Marxist-Leninist structures and, and revolutions in the countries that have uh, have had those revolutions. Do you think that that's, you, I mean, would you agree with that or would you disagree? Uh, well, in my experience, it's definitely been true. I mean, I, I can't speak to what it's like in high school history classes. Now, if anything, here's, here's what's odd. I think nowadays, this and this is going just purely on what I see on social media, whatever is talked about, regarding like some of the bad stuff that this country does, especially in terms of foreign policy, it's only either it's only communicated as happening under Trump or communicated as being because of Trump. Uh, Meanwhile, as far as foreign policy goes, there's really not much that uh, not much different under Trump as there was under, uh, under Obama. And then of course under Bush and under Clinton, and it really goes all the way back um, to Vietnam era. I mean, the the foreign policy has kind of just looked the same, and yet I think it's being talked about now like it's a, it's an issue with Trump. I will say the one exception to that, of course, was a uh, AP U.S. history that I took in which our AP history teacher at this specific high school was kind of a, a nut job, but. Uh, an incredibly intelligent nut job. And he was probably the only teacher that ever kind of gave us to a straight about just how, and just some, but just some of like the horrible shit that either our country is doing or, or has done. He had been there for decades and there was no getting rid of him at that point. So he was pretty much at the point that he could say whatever he wanted. He could, even if it meant criticizing U.S. foreign policy or he didn't go as far. He definitely, he didn't say, you know, 9-11 was an inside job. He openly said those people were morons, but he definitely like was right up there with like Michael Moore talking about the way government uh, used 9-11 to push its own authoritarianism, both domestically and internationally. Um, so he he could pretty much say whatever he wanted, but I would imagine that in the average history class, yeah, I mean, it definitely is like, pretty narrow narrative i'd imagine yeah i'd say so and then um you know it's it all comes back to you know your sourcing too because there are plenty of people who um and you know rightly so and support well I'll, you know I would, i'll support those criticisms who come out and say hey you know the u.s has done these terrible things these unconscionable things the world over and overthrown countless democratically elected governments all for to, you know, to protect profit and to, you know, aid U.S. imperialism. But then those people turn around and say that, oh, John Brown was very bad. Yes. You know, okay, so that that brings up something. I was going to bring it up later in the episode, but this is probably a a good segue. So just um, earlier today, this morning, 
Charlie Kirk tweeted, uh, burning an American city to the ground won't bring back George Floyd. Uh, you know, he's not wrong. Um, but then someone else said, uh, quote, tweeted him and said, bombing Middle East countries won't undo 9-11. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, to technically take that statement in and of itself, Charlie Kirk's not wrong. However, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about uh, decades, centuries of oppression of, of of a certain people in this country um, and how that is finally starting to, to boil over uh, in ways that we're all noticing? Or we're just talking about um, how some people stole a TV from a Target um, and that's not nice of them. Yeah, well, I, I think that anything on Twitter should always be taken with Hey, there is definitely this is definitely more nuanced than you can fit into however many characters they let you use now. Um, right? Yeah, I don't even know what it is anymore. <laughs> and that, yeah. no, that's where that's where I'm at. I mean, that's why normally in the past I've always said something or responded to other people. I recognize, like, I think most people can agree that looting is bad. I also think most people can agree that what happened to George Floyd is an absolute tragedy. Um, and a lot of those people who are only talking about one doesn't mean that they're condoning the other. So, you know, that does work both ways. But the thing is, what we're talking about, especially in the case of this tweet that I just referred to, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of deaths, thousands of miles away from us, killing people that had nothing to do with said terrorist attack. So um, this is... You know, and this is something I know we were going to talk about when it comes to U.S. foreign policy. It seems like it's like Twitter in that there is no room for nuance. Would you agree? With me? No. On Twitter and in U.S. foreign policy, there's no room uh, for nuance. Okay, my bad. It's, it's yeah, you too. But, well, I think that, it. I guess just like anything else, depends on how you look at it. Because there's always, I mean, U.S. policy you could probably boil down to black and white pretty easily and mostly just say pretty much if the U S is for it, it's worth opposing in most cases. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I would agree. It's just, there's always going to be more nuance that people are all willing to overlook just to get a dunk on, on Twitter, even if the dunk is great, especially on Charlie Kirk. But I think right. the, uh, I think the the other thing there is that there's always going to be another layer to be peeled back, which is sort of, it's not frustrating, but it, it becomes, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're balancing to try and come up with a coherent political opinion when there's always something else to read. Like you, you start off with Chomsky and then, okay, well, where do you go next? Do you go to Lenin or do you go to like Ponacoke or do you, do you uh, jump over and read like Murray Rothbard or something like that? It's good to get a, something across all spectrums, but it's like, where do you go next? You know, there's always going to be something more to be discussed on there. Right. So then as we're pivoting to foreign policy, if I'm going to ask kind of a random question, since the turn of the century, 1900, what would you say would be the single biggest foreign policy mistake the United States has made since 1900. You can sp- you can pick a specific event. You can pick a specific political philosophy that has had sp- certain amounts of damage has caused to this country. You know, you answer the question however you'd like, but that's the question. Well, maybe I'll just yeah, you know, just off the cuff, I'd go with recency bias and say that we could go with. I mean, you could go with. With the Vietnam War, you could go with any of these, with any of these U.S. democracy parades to any of these countries. But I think just by recency bias and the amount of data that is available in the states, maybe we can say that the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. I mean, even even just keeping it in Iraq, like a million Iraqis dead. You have uh, depleted uranium rounds that were used by coalition troops that when those rounds are fired and they hit surfaces there there's dust particles that come off of these rounds that can be inhaled. And there's actually a Twitter page that's entirely devoted to birth defects in Fallujah because I think, I can't remember the guy's name to save my life. It was a representative from Washington. It might've been Jim McDermott, something along those lines, but he gave a speech about depleted uranium uh, usage in, in munitions. And 
uh, something I'll never forget hearing from this speech, which has been confirmed by that Twitter that Twitter page and and by confirmed by um, just the the history of Iraq since the U.S. invasion is in some parts of Iraq now, when people have children. When the baby's first born, they don't ask the doctor, is it a boy or a girl? They ask, is it normal? And (sighs) I honestly, I think it would be really hard to pick one. But like I said, just, just because it's something that has happened in, in our lifetime. Yeah. Because never write the U.S. off. There's always an opportunity to, to commit something more egregious. Yeah. Right. Um, And there's, well, and there's always a, a chance for other countries to commit things that are also egregious and and repulsive in terms of human rights, but not to the same right. extent that the U.S. has, and not for and not for uh, not for as long as the U.S. has. Right, and and what I find so annoying um, when you talk about the mistakes that. United States government has has made the horrible choices specific to our foreign policy. Um, Saying, oh, but China or, oh, but the UAE or like, that's not an excuse. The horrible things that other countries do is not an excuse for us making the decisions that we have made. And so, you know, with this country, given that, we have, at least used to have, an appreciation for um, individual liberties and, and human rights. I mean, it's the fact that, that so many of its citizens are dedicated to these ideas that we 100% have to hold the government accountable so that they also live up to these ideas. So talking about our atrocities doesn't cover up the atrocities of, of other countries. It's the fact that we're going out of our way to address these atrocities and call them out. Um, that's, that's our, uh, that's our response. And that is our responsibility to, to do that, especially in the face of these other countries that are supposedly beneath us um, doing stuff that isn't even anywhere near as horrible as, as some of the stuff that this country itself does. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. But a hundred percent, but I, I also wanted to ask you, so what do you think uh, is what do you think is the worst U.S. foreign policy? And actually, actually, before I even ask you that, I do want to make a point about the supposed mistakes of the United States government and of any, it could probably be applied to any imperialist government, but more specifically, it's talked about the United States because you could say, well, I mean, George W. Bush wasn't exactly a Mensa member or anything like that. Right. But it's one thing to, you know, spill, you know, spill your coffee. It's another thing to invade a country and kill hundreds of thousands or millions of people and to stay there for 20 years plus um, or to stay there for almost 20 years, I guess I should say in the, in the case of Afghanistan, but there are people there, um, new, uh, new soldiers in Afghanistan doing tours there that weren't alive when nine 11 happened. Right. Um, but it's, one thing to say, well, you know, oops a daisy, but um, Michael Parenti, who is a, a political scientist and author that I definitely owe a lot to when it comes to shaping my current political views, and I would recommend uh, his book, Black Shirts and Reds, as a great starting point in understanding the functions of uh, fascism as a, as a function of uh, a decay of capitalism and in tandem with capitalism in tandem with with big business and anything along those lines but it's i don't think you can call these things mistakes you can call them yeah it's all done with a very discreet but in some senses but it's all done with a big sense of purpose like uh, just a quick example and then i can then i'll you know i'll let you pick your the worst uh foreign policy move of the united states since 1900 but the latest one that I could think of was when they were talking about overthrowing Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. And I can't remember for the life of me who it was that gave a press conference and they said, well, we're in talks with American oil companies about this. And, before, you know, with Iraq, they at least tried to, they at least had like Colin Powell go to the UN and say, oh, look, the trucks moved. That means there's weapons of mass destruction. But in this case, they were just like straight up. Yeah, uh, we like the oil there. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I just could, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I could, but at the same time, you just think that 
has have things really become that bad that they don't even try to be discreet about things like this anymore? Yeah. They just openly say, "We'd like Venezuela's oil, please and thank you." Right. But um, yeah. Uh, okay, so to answer the question, um, you know, I, I, it feels like a cop out, but I did have it in my head already. I'd probably have to say um, the same thing. Really, the entire fallout post nine eleven. And it's not, and I guess what I want to talk about maybe isn't specific to foreign policy, but um, perhaps even worse, it's the programs that were implemented domestically. Uh, the implementation of, of Homeland Security and the Patriot Act and um, a very dangerous uh, stranglehold on rights of Americans, American citizens, residents of this country um, in ways that that we as a country just kind of like laid down to. And, you know, we make jokes about, you know, George Bush mentioning 9-11, Rudy Giuliani. Um, what was the joke? I think it was Joe Biden who made the joke, right? The everything Rudy Giuliani says, it's a, a, a noun, a verb in 9-11. Um, so, you know. Did he say it? Did he say it coherently? Like, did everyone understand? Yeah, him? but I think it was because it was in 2004. So, <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it was during, it, or maybe it was 2008. It was 2008. I don't remember. Maybe I might be, it might not have even been Joe Biden. I can't remember. But in any case, someone once said that joke about uh, Rudy Giuliani at, at a debate. Uh, and uh, so this, this, this tragedy happens and immediately, and that's, that's why I empathize with some of the stuff that people are, some of the concerns people are raising about with the coronavirus is that nowhere in the history of, of this government or likely any government anywhere has, have, have they taken certain powers usually granted in the case of a quote unquote emergency and those powers not have been returned to the people the way they were supposed to be. And since the fallout of nine 11, um, most prominently we've seen that with the passing of the Patriot act and, and Homeland security and much more, recent, you know, expansions in, in domestic spying. Um, and, you know, even today, Trump passes, uh, issues some bullshit executive order about social media. I mean, just these, the ever-growing expansion of the executive branch and the power that is being put into the executive branch, it really is quite horrifying. And so much of that started with 9-11. And it's just gotten progressively worse domestically and abroad since then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. It was just, I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said that uh, you should never waste a good crisis yeah. politically. Yes. And, I mean, that's just, that's, it's just fucking a prime example. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I, I, in that same vein, I wonder if it's, and I'm fairly sure it has to be another media function to, as those rights get dialed back to keep pointing at other countries and saying, well, look, look how bad it is over there. Just so everyone here can be like, well, land of the free. Hell yeah. Right. Exactly. And, th and that's what, that's what so many people just kind of fall back on that blind, ignorant patriotism as if that's what real patriotism is. And then to question that or call that out again leaning on the principles that supposedly had founded this, this country, um, suddenly they're the ones who are either liberal snowflakes or, you know, they, they hate America because they're questioning this approved narrative about the need to protect people or the, the need for, uh, my, you know, my favorite line, you know, if, if you don't have anything to hide, you have nothing to be afraid of. That just blows my fucking mind. Yeah. And, you know, that all comes back to a good judge of someone's maybe not knowledge on, on that, but just a good gauge of their politics on that in general could be, okay, Edward Snowden, is he a traitor? And some people are like, hell yeah, that motherfucker should be in jail. Yeah. Like, and then, but then you ask these Can I swear people, on your podcast? Is that is that okay? No. You ask these same people, <laughs> okay, tell me who Edward Snowden is. Tell me who Julian Assange is. Tell me who Chelsea Manning is. These people will be like, oh, they're spies. Oh, they're, they're Russian agents. Oh, they're hackers. No, that is not the case of any of them. 
And yet they all think they, these somehow these sh- Julian Assange is a journalist. Uh, Edward Stone was a former contractor. Chelsea Manning was what wasn't she? She was a, a an army analyst or something. Like these were not some foreign agents. These were U.S. Well, at least in the case of Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning, U.S. citizens, people in the system who saw these abuses taking place firsthand. Like. These are not foreign actors, and yet these people who are like, oh, these traitors, they don't even know who these people are. Yeah, and they'll pile on because the same people who always pine on and on about fake news and can disagree with whatever is in the media, which, I mean, there should be a distrust of the media when people talk about state-run media. I mean, the U.S. media also applies. Yeah, yeah. But when people will turn around and look at one story and say, well, that's fake news. And then they read another story like that that says, you know, Edward Snowden is a traitor to this country or something like that. And they go, hell yeah, I totally believe that. And that continues by extension too, to anyone who is opponent of the U S is that, you know, and maybe the dynamic is just distrust of news domestically, but not the world over where they say, okay, here's a domestic news story. And I go, that's fake news. And then they have a story. Oh, well, China's doing this or Russia's doing this or, yeah. So and so is doing something worse than the U.S. And they go, "Oh, that's a hundred percent real," and I'll believe that at face value. Yeah. I, so Jimmy Dore actually had a really good stand-up gig on this uh, about Julian Assange and and Chuck Todd. The way Chuck Todd reacted to and explained Julian Assange's murder when you know he was hauled out of the Ecuadorian embassy last year, um, Julian, uh, Chuck Todd immediately referred to him as a hacker. He said, you know, press protections are very important in this country. However, Edward uh, Julian Assange is not a journalist. He's a hacker. And immediately went on and on about why Julian Assange should be arrested and tried. Meanwhile, Julian Assange has never once hacked anything himself. And to prosecute him for those secrets that he did disseminate is 100% an attack on the First Amendment and journalists everywhere. And yet this fucking moron, who is nothing more than a spokesperson for the military-industrial complex, is going on about how Julian Assange should be arrested. It's fucking insane. So people say, oh, fake news. You know, you got the Trump Trumpers who are like, oh, fake news is all that liberal media. And you got liberals who are like, fake news is Fox News and Daily Wire or whatever the fuck else conservatives read. And I'm like, so much of all of this is bullshit. <laughs> yeah, well, I read it on Breitbart, so... Right, it has to be true if it's on Breitbart. Yeah, well, I guess to to that same notion, those people who make any enemies out of themselves don't do it by opposing everyday Americans, right. even though they're. Although there are there are plenty of people who probably do just on the basis of being American. There are also plenty en- like quote enemies of the American state who differentiate between the American people and the government. Like uh, Nicolas Maduro, I think it was Maduro actually. Um, had a letter sent to, I don't know personally, but I will just say the government of Venezuela had a letter sent out into the interwebs that basically said, you know, we stand with the people of the United States and we, you know, we don't have anything against you because we understand it's your government's doing. And more, you know, basically, oh, like we're all in this together. But those people become enemies of the state because of their opposition to power and to the ruling class. Actually, Chomsky has a, a good bit on that too, on how the big, uh, the biggest, the, the worst thing you can do as as someone in a position of power is to also oppose that same power if you bite the hand that feeds you, like you, like Nixon did with Watergate or something like that. So, um, and then also to to bring it back to the general political outlook that I had outlined for you before. This is from uh, November 1917. Uh, Lenin's draft resolution on the freedom of the press, where he says that for the bourgeoisie, freedom of the press meant freedom for the rich to publish and for the capitalists to control the newspapers, a practice which in all countries, including even the freest, produced a corrupted press. Mm. Whether or not you agree with that, I think that that is one of many explanations why Twitter has become such an important tool, too, because it's such a good place to get alternative news. Right. Um, and and find out the truth behind people like Chelsea Manning and what she has gone through is just dreadful with, uh, I think she just recently got out of prison. Did she not? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
and the fines that she was being levied every day just trying to completely yeah. crush her. Hundreds of thousands system. of dollars, I think, right? Yeah, it's, it's flat out ridiculous. And then with, all, with all, what happens with any of those quote, enemies of the state? Yeah, Go ahead. all because what it was, uh, she's like uh, contempt of court, right? Because she didn't comply with a warrant um, or, or a court order. Um, but then eventually when the case fell apart, she was still being held. And then these fines were just being racked up against her. And this is after she had already gotten out of prison um, because Obama commuted her sentence in 2016. It's just fucking insane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, well, and and this brings up like, so, so the, the headquarters for alternative news the other day in the New York times, Barry White had um, <laughs> written a piece about how like Joe Rogan is like the new mainstream media. Um, and and I I mean I have communicated um, ideas similar to that when you know when you are someone like Joe Rogan who has millions of people listening to his podcast or when you're someone like Eric Weinstein who has I think several hundred thousand subscribers I'm not sure how many people listen to his podcast but pretty significant following. Um, meanwhile, uh, average uh, nightly news whether it's on MSNBC or, or CNN. They'll break a hundred thousand. Maybe uh, high traffic will will get up to a million, but still nothing like even Joe Rogan. Their YouTube clips might have under a hundred thousand, and and that's nothing compared to some of these outlets. Some of these outlets that are pretty much the uh, the epitome of that alternative news, where these other ideas are discussed and, and played with ideas that would never find their way onto. MSNBC or, or CNN or Fox. Um, and so it, it is, I mean, that's, that's why I believe that social media is, is very important. And, and these platforms where people can create content, and discuss these ideas are, are very important. And so Trump being the fucking moron that he is with this executive order today, that likely isn't even enforceable. I mean, people, people don't understand how, how this in and of itself is a, a breach of, of free speech. Like, and, and I'm not saying that I agree with some platforms decision to censor potentially purposefully um, some ideas, but, but like at the same time, it's also a platform. It, it can do whatever it wants with its platform. Uh, and people just don't understand that. Like I, I can support Twitter's right to control the content on its site without agreeing with the way it does it. But people don't understand that. Mm-hmm. But so, all right. So um, we can go ahead and finish up. If you want to finish here, um, tell us if you have any in mind, um, if you had to pick like one, I'll give you two books for you for to recommend to people uh, to kind of explore some of, uh, the ideas you were talking about, and if you were to pick a podcast, either a specific episode or just a podcast to subscribe to, what would it be? Interesting. Um, well, I think I would go with the one book recommendation, uh, or the book that I brought up earlier, Black Shirts and Reds, which is by Michael Parenti, um, is I think a great entry point into seeing how, not how politics work, but the dynamics of power work in who sides with who and uh, a quote from Michael Prenti actually on that topic is uh, that all the time in history class, you're telling well, all these, all these communists, all these socialists, all they want is power, power, power. That's all they want. But why is it that they always side with the marginalized groups? Why is it that they always side with the poor? And I think that book is in, in that vein, a, a great starting point for people looking to get into it. And then I, I would also recommend Um, if you, I mean, we're talking entry points. So I guess if you wanted to read Das Kapital, it would be good to have a companion with that. David Harvey's companion to that is also very good. Um, can I cheat and have three since that one's a little advanced? Fine. (laughs) Um, I think besides that, another good place to start would just be with what is to be done by the good Vladimir Ilyich. So I will say, I'm not surprised that this wasn't on your list. Cause I don't, I haven't read it yet. It's still on my list, but I would 
I, I, so I don't know if it's like necessarily a good starting point, but but you would recommend this to me, and this is actually the next list on my on my book list to buy. It's a History of America and Ten Strikes. Oh yeah, by Eric Loomis. Yes. Yeah, I think that that is another. Actually, you know what? I I think that is great in its own right for describing how political power has worked historically in the in the United States. It's a little bit more of a focused view. Yeah. And I think. Loomis does a great job of portraying just the incredible disparity between and, and the odds that these people have stood up against um, to fight for their dignity and for their lives and for better conditions for themselves and for others. And I think that that is, I think that's a good one too. I agree. So then podcast, what would it be? Podcast? Hmm. I actually don't listen to too many podcasts, to tell you the truth. Well, uh, I, well, I'm honored that that this podcast is one of the few you listen to. <laughs> <laughs> I figured you'd say Pearls of the Roundtable. I would probably go with that because they do discuss, and like I said, I'm not too well versed in podcasts, so any it, it, it probably wouldn't be too hard to correct me or to point me in the direction of a different one. But I think Pearls of the Roundtable does a really good job of talking about a lot of diverse topics. Um, they've had episodes on revolutionary women i can't remember if it was just revolutionary uh vietnamese women or just revolutionary women but they had an episode on the state of cuba today they've had an interview with grover fur like like you said you were going to listen to which i think is a great place for people to start maybe questioning hey is everything i've been taught about the soviet union correct um yeah i i I think i wouldn't have any issue with going with rolls of the round table all right so black shirts and reds history of america and 10 strikes Das Kapital and NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, or uh, no, uh, Pearls of the Roundtable. <laughs> All right. It's funded by, it's funded by APAC. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan, this has been good. Hopefully you'll come back again. This was our 10th our episode, so it was kind of a special episode for, for you to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate it. Uh, hopefully... Uh... Hopefully you got some semblance of, of enjoyment out of it, but well, people usually don't interact with me. I was going to say, talking to you, it's, it's hard to have any fun, but, uh, you know, it could have been worse. Yeah, okay, agreed. All right. Hey, guys, thanks for listening to this week's episode with Ryan and me. Remember to check us out on Twitter at Pod or email us Pod at gmail.com. Aaron and I will be back next week. We will see you then. Sapere is a production from Gaudium. For fun, for future. Hosted by me, Aaron Johnson. And me, Dylan Shoup. See you again next time.